to 90834. It's the weekly podcast where guests share the biggest lessons they've learned in therapy. In each episode, I'll pose two questions. What were you looking to resolve by going to therapy? And what did you really end up getting out of therapy? I'm Shannon Miller, a licensed clinical social worker in private practice who has the privilege of spending every day watching the therapeutic process lead to unexpected and beautiful places. Today, we're welcoming Jane Doe. She's a 58-year-old American living abroad who's been in and out of therapy for what she calls decades. Her most consistent therapeutic routine has been within the last two years. Welcome, Jane. What did you hope to get out of therapy? Like, why did you start going to therapy? Well, what I, this most recent, the last two or three years, um, I'll, I'll give like a broader context um, that my youngest daughter has significant mental illness mm-hmm. and has since she was, I'm going to cry. Since she was a child, our home life was basically a a living nightmare when she was young. She was very violent, very emotionally dysregulated, affected my oldest daughter, myself, basically living in fear in our household. Can you give a little bit of details about like what she would do that would cause fear in the household? Oh, she would, um, it started with just kind of, you know, emotional regulation, dysregulation, screaming, crying, kicking, graduated to threatening to throw herself off the balcony and land on her head and break her neck, picking up knives and stabbing meat, saying, this is my sister, this is my sister, coming after me with scissors and destroying anything she could get her hands on. Escalated to, you know, four to five days a week, four to five hours a night. Um, It just escalated and escalated and was really unbearable until a certain point. And I guess I'll mention we had an opportunity to start her on homeopathics, uh-huh. <laughs> which was amazing to me. It was my last straw before putting her on um, on pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And it worked actually for a brief amount of time or for a couple of years. You know, it oh, worked. Okay. The, the, the extreme emotional dysregulation t- you know, tapered off and we went through a couple of good years where she was pretty okay. And then things started to kind of go downhill again when she was in entering junior high. But I think there were a lot of social issues there as well. Mm-hmm. We were living overseas in a very conservative culture. She's the daughter of a opinionated woman from the United States. Um, didn't jive well. She later reported a sexual assault. So a few years ago, she had basically the flip switched again and ended up in the psychiatric hospital. Um, and that's been a cycle over the last, since 2000 in and out of the psychiatric hospital, several suicide attempts, um, in and out of residential treatment diagnosed at the most recently. And I'm finally getting a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, major depressive disorder and, um, you know, bipolar, She's got an, a list of diagnoses as long as your arm. <laughs> uh-huh. So why did I come to therapy in the last two and a half years? All of that history that I've just described is stress enough to drive anyone crazy. Excuse my language. But um, why I really came to therapy was because I was experiencing an overwhelming debil- debilitating parental guilt. Okay, that- so you had... Tons of parental guilt, and how yeah. did you how did you feel towards that parental guilt? Right, because you're feeling it, but how does that compel you then to get to therapy? Well, it it got to the point that I became 
suicidal periodically. Um, I would not only ideation and granted over the, the period, you know, the span of my life, I've gotten kind of close to that. I've had that, that kind of, you know, we can go into my, my emotional or mental health history later as well, but literally um, beyond ideation planning, just feeling worthless and like a failure because I was actually verbally and emotionally abusive to my children when they were little, not physically, um, but sometimes you don't know which is worse. Right? My youngest daughter was born in 2001. I mean, my oldest daughter, sorry. My youngest daughter was born in 2004 and it's the youngest one that, that has been um, experiencing severe mental health issues since she was a child. In 2005, I was actually diagnosed with depressive bipolar 2 disorder. And it took me a while to find a, a decent practitioner and a, and a, a medication regimen that actually kind of calmed my mind enough that I could actually begin to take on the work of therapy. I don't think I was, like I said, I've been in therapy for decades and it just never, never stuck, never moved anything. Yeah, that's, uh, so I started therapy then, but it wasn't until the last two, two and a half years when her mental illness progressed, you know, seeing my oldest daughter's challenges as well, um, that it became so debilitating that, yeah, it was more destructive than, than I would have thought. Just mm -hmm. leading me towards suicidal ideation or planning was, it's scary. It was really scary. So then you start therapy. And so the tip of the iceberg is that there was tendencies getting stronger and stronger towards suicide. You start therapy. And what do we discover under the water line? I've known for a long time, like throughout my history of therapy, that for decades since adolescence, I had developed a, a pervasive feeling of inadequacy, uselessness, uh, persistent depression and anxiety of my own, uh, anxiety related to academic and professional performance, as well as social interaction. So social anxiety, which led to years, again, decades of self-sabotage, both professionally and personally, as well, decades of uh, alcohol and drug abuse. So um, can I ask you maybe to give a little bit more detail of how did your anxiety show up, the personal, professional, and social anxiety. We use those words, but like, what was that like for you? What Describe what it feels like to have that type of anxiety. Well, I mean, I, I guess I can give examples of when I was younger, just a pretty concrete example. I never learned how to be social. You know, my, my family was very insular. My parents weren't social. We never had exposure to, to other um, people, really. And uh, given what I learned about myself, what I learned, um, what I was taught and the level of anxiety that I had adopted and the feelings of inadequacy that I had adopted over the course of my life, by the time I came to high school and we would go to parties, for example, mm -hmm. um, I couldn't go to a party without drinking first. So this was part of the, you know, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't function socially without having, you know, that kind of preparation. I guess. I mean, it's funny because I'm I'm a very high achiever academically, and I always have been. But I still live with this and, and have lived with this anxiety from like my adolescence. Yeah, 
never going to be good enough. It's never good enough. They, like very, very high levels of performance anxiety around homework and school. Even though I did very well, I couldn't shake it. I just couldn't shake it. And now, or before these last couple of years, it in terms of, of professional performance, still exists socially, but anxiety that's paralyzing to be able to express myself at work, express an opinion, do any kind of like presentations, this kind of thing where I automatically just freeze. And therefore I, um, I, yeah, I feel like it's kind of like I just shut down. Like I know that I can do better, but I, but I shut down and I anticipate, well, it's going to be a failure anyway. So why bother? I don't know. It's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to explain, but did you figure out or learn why you may be doing that in therapy? Was that part of the learning process? Yeah. When I started recently, you know, go back to, uh, to the issue with my, my parental guilt and circle back around there after I had, you know, got relatively stabilized with medication and had gone through these years and years of, of crippling parental guilt. I remember most recently when I started therapy again, it's like I was dissociated. I could see what was happening. I could see what I was doing, but I couldn't control it. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't control it. So um, it was almost like you were watching yourself do yeah. these things. Yeah. yeah. And it was so just trying to think of the, the right word. It was so deeply disturbing, saddening, devastating that me being who I am, what I know, I knew that, but I couldn't do anything about it. I was out of control. That was so hard for me to deal with. Starting in therapy this time, even though I knew I had a bipolar two diagnosis, a depressive bipolar two diagnosis, I always felt that's just an excuse. That's an excuse. You're trying to find an excuse for why you were shit mom. So that was, was some of the first discussions we had in therapy is because that was a huge source of my guilt. Also, it was impossible for me to deal with to know that I, I should know better. I do know better. I should know better. So it took a long time to get to a point where I, I could kind of move beyond that and learn to get some acceptance of it. One of the things that, that of course, we worked on in therapy or I worked on in therapy was because it's also convoluted that, you know, coming with the issue of my daughter, uh, working backwards to realize, okay, there's a huge issue of self-esteem, not just self-esteem, but inadequacy and, and frustration and anger and really not knowing myself and who I am and what I'm capable of. So, of course, diving into the roots of that. And, you know, of course, I think it's logical that it goes back to family and my own background. And I'm going to go ahead and preface this because I think it's a, <laughs> it's one of the things that I've also had to learn. And I'm not going to say it's 100% there yet. But again, I feel like it's an excuse. You know, blame your parents for all of your problems and not assume responsibility for your own actions. So that's the way I've been finding with that particular issue my entire life. Understanding that I have a lot of underlying issues. And a lot of this comes from a lifetime of, of doubting myself and, and being depressed. So some of the things that we uh, went to, of course, um, thinking about where my, my sense of 
inadequacy and anxiety comes from. We talked about the internal critic, that voice that always says, you can't do this. You're not good enough. You're incompetent. And I was asked once to picture who that critic is. You know, immediately I thought, my father, that's the only face I could see. My father was a very volatile, angry, distant, you know, emotionally, verbally abusive man, physically abusive with my brothers and sisters. So uh, we discussed that. And then also my experience with, I mean, the, the entire household was toxic and wrought with fear and anger and frustration. My brothers and sisters, I had to, to deal with them as well because they were, you know, they had already suffered through all of this. They were angry and, and deeply unhappy. So therefore, you know, how, how do they behave? They behave the way they learned. So their anger and frustration led to their act, them acting out in cruelty as well. So I Which had- a fancy way of saying that shit rolls downhill. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Okay. And it, keep, and it keeps rolling downhill for generations, unfortunately. I hate cliches, you know, the intergenerational abuse. But cliches exist for a reason because there's always some truth to them. Yeah. So another cliche, which is uh, interesting, but true from experience, you know, I passed up numerous really great guys, you know, really great potential partners. And what did I do? I married a man who was volatile angry, verbally abusive, um, distant. And, and yeah, again, it's just like, oh, there you go. You know, it sucks. It sucks. I hate that. I hate that mm-hmm. about this whole process and, and mental illness and, and generational, you know, makes me mad. But it also sounds like through therapy, you learned more of how to observe it mm-hmm. than to criticize yourself for it. Like understanding, why did I choose that man? Mm-hmm. That did that, you know. Why were my brothers and sisters cruel? Mm-hmm. You know, understanding the whys of how it happened, taking the more academic, intellectual approach to understanding it, observing rather than being in it. Well, I, I kind of feel like I have to to frame this and where I'm sitting and why I feel like why I became who I am and why therapy has helped me change it. Okay. Um, I know that I remember one moment in therapy quite a few years ago, you know, talking through all of the family stuff, the cliche stuff. And, and one of my therapists said, wow, your mom sounds like a bitch. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> because I grew up thinking that my mom was my best friend. Yeah, that we had a very close relationship, et cetera. And then through the process, realizing that, well, you know, she actually used me as an emotional crutch, series of emotional abandonment you know, micro abandonments, I guess, emotionally. And I think one of the key pieces of understandings I came to was that my mom wasn't willing or able to protect me in the environment that I needed and deserved protection from. So um, I mean, this kind of all folds into to what brought me here over the last two years um, as well. Basically what it, it, that whole vortex, you know, meant that I never felt safe in my own home. It was never a safe place to be. So um, therefore I learned 
you're not safe anywhere. So that fear at home sort of generalized everything. Yeah, everything. And um, because I grew up in a in a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, you think you're sick. I'm going to take you to the hospital and show you someone who's sick, which basically just invalidates and 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 whatever feelings, emotions, sadness, anger you might have. So talking about um, therapeutic methods, due to this, I have spent my life intellectualizing all of my feelings, the way I approach things. So I think that many years of therapy never really worked because I wasn't able to, to, I just wasn't able to go there. I just wasn't able to go there. I think that, you know, medication helped. I'm I'm, 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 I'm following this train of thought because... Most recent therapy, that methodologies of visualization and and mindfulness and this kind of stuff just didn't work for me at all because I was completely in my head, completely in my head. So I needed to work within that intellectual framework first and just, um, I'm not sure, just, I don't know, for whatever reason in the last couple of years, maybe because of like the desperation of my situation, I was able to go a little bit. A little bit farther there. Rather than observe and intellectualize your emotions to actually feel them. Yeah. Yeah. And know that you could survive feeling them. Exactly. One thing that my my therapist said to me, which I would have, that would be one of the things that I thought, well, this is just too silly and stupid. It doesn't make, you know, it's not going to work, whatever it was, um, you know, talking to your inner child. Again, it sounds so cliche, but talking to that, that little kid that you were growing up in that environment, like defending myself. Being the parent you had always deserved, but never received. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, I always thought that was kind of nyo-nyo, as we say. <laughs> mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, it kind of clicked this time and it's made a big difference. Another interesting suggestion most recently was, I had already mentioned that inner critic and how 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 to deal with that inner critic and how to, you know, relate to that inner critic. And um, I was asked to picture who my inner critic would be. And it was my dad automatically, my dad. So um, the therapist suggested, you know, take a picture of your dad with you everywhere you go. And, um, and I'm like, so what? So when I, when I hear that voice, I can say, fuck you. (laughs) Basically the, basically the, the, the conclusion is, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So also, um, yeah, the whole inner, inner critic issue, I think one important thing that, that we discussed in therapy also was realizing that it's normal for me, especially, I mean, it was, it was, it was very, very real. Um, and I think it's real for everybody to some extent, but you know, the compartmentalize all of these different, um, voices, persona, parts of yourself. So the, the critic the anxiety, the understand, ask this critic, for example, like, what good are you doing me right now? How are you helping me right now? Because we develop these different compartments, these different persona and voices kind of as a, as a defense mechanism. It's the way we learn to deal things like my intellectualization, my internal critic, and doesn't mean they're healthy, but, but they exist. They just are. Yeah, they just are. So So I think that methodology is called internal family systems. Yeah. So you start deconstructing sort of all of these things. What got you to therapy was debilitating mom guilt. 
mm-hmm. right? Of not handling other times of your life, not handling parenting in a in the way that you had wanted to, right? And in the way was, in the way that I wish I had gotten. in the way that you yeah. wish you had had. And then there was I'm inferring sort of maybe some guilt of blaming yourself for your daughter's mental health issues. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. hundred percent. Nonstop. Okay. And so now that you've been going through this and, and do you still feel responsible to the same degree? Like, like how is life different now for you that you've done sort of more intensive therapy over the last several years? I guess one thing I'll say is I never thought I would get to this place, ever thought I would get to this place. Over the last couple of years, it's been pretty intense. Um, I I think I mentioned I I went into EMDR therapy when my daughter was at her worst in and out of the psychiatric hospitals over the last year for several suicide attempts. And I thought, you know, something's got to give because this is killing me. And the first thing we worked on was the parental guilt, that debilitating parental guilt. I remember, oh, go ahead. And you had sort of nested EMDR therapy within already a therapeutic relationship. So you took on basically a second therapist just to do sort of semi-regular EMDR sessions. And then you processed that separately with your, your regular therapist. Well, yeah. Number one, I would have never gone to EMDR therapy if it wasn't for my regular therapist. And also it, um, they worked completely complimentary. I could go to EMDR and deal with some like very difficult traumatic issues and then come back and process it with my, my regular therapist and muck through the emotions as opposed to just, you know, the, the EMDR here, here, this is the way it is. And I mean, you know, it has their, it has, they, they both have their different methodologies and, and their benefits. Um, and, and it's not, it's not like I only would have discovered this through EMDR and it's not like something that I hadn't discussed already with my regular therapist, but I think at the time both together, it was just, it just clicked. I, I thought that I was over, over these many years since 2007, when I was diagnosed and started medication, I thought that I had come to accept my mental illness and how deeply it affected me. I didn't. I hadn't. I had. I had. But in the context of my daughter's lives, the guilt that I felt about their childhoods and my behavior in the last six months to a year was the first time I was ever able to say I was sick. I was ill. I felt like I was out of my mind. So my whole, you know, uh, struggle with, ah, but you knew better. You know, you knew better. You're smarter than that. Of course, you knew better because you knew what it felt like to be treated like shit. <laughs> um, not that that's funny. Yeah, I've finally gotten to a, a place where I can accept to a greater extent that I, I was I was sick. And I did the best I could do in the situation I was in. Beyond that, realizing that that I came to parenthood with the toolbox that I learned and collected over the course of my lifetime. And I've said this before, I think that, you know, a lot of the tools were bent and broken and harmful, but also realizing that there were some good ones in there too. My kids and I had some good times and they've learned a lot of good stuff from me as well. And that was extremely difficult to accept. Difficult to accept that there's a lot of good in there too. 
Yeah, yeah. I, still, I still struggle with that, but I'm much more able to do so. And one of the things that throughout this whole time, if we, you know, go back to the parental guilt and of course, where all of the roots of all of that behavior, I always felt like there's no way in hell that my children can love me. No way in hell. I mean, they have to hate me. You know, my oldest daughter says often, she's like, oh, I love you, mom. You're such a great mom. And I, I, I could never believe that. Two years ago, a year and a half ago, I would never believe that. And it's interesting because, I mean, and this is part of the how therapy made these connections for me. Over the last decade or more, um, my relationship with my father has, has actually healed quite a bit. It's very positive. He's very supportive in his way. You know, he can't say I love you. He can't, you know, can't talk to you about anything. He's just like, Ugh. but he listens. Part of that process, the therapeutic process helped me to realize that, well, you know what? He came to parenthood with a toolbox as well. Same way, lots bent and broken, but also I recognize very clearly all of the great things that I got from him. Did you want to ask a question before I? Well, I was just going to say there we see the intergenerational trauma cliche. Like part of this is recognizing my dad came into parenthood with a very limited set of skills. Mm. And while it doesn't forgive or excuse any of the behaviors, I kind of understand why. Right. And it just makes some space for empathy. You know, my mom as well, but that's a different story. You know, mm -hmm. you come to recognize that where where they came from. And of course, being in the situation that I was being, you know, ill, alone, single mom, working full time, two young kids. That's what I learned. That was my go-to. That's all I, yeah. Anyway, I could feel really guilty all over again, but it makes, makes sense. You know, it makes sense that, that in that context, things would go to shit. Um, so yeah, it took me a long time to, to get to that point to say, okay, I was sick. It's not an excuse. It's not an excuse for my behavior. I had the parenting skills that I learned. So, uh, I had already mentioned how my relationship with my, my father has, has improved and, you know, healed itself to a great extent. Actually, I think it's pretty much healed. I don't have resentment. I have a clear recognition of, man, you sucked, you know, <laughs> But um, it's where he came from. That's what he learned. So um, I think given all of these other extremely important realizations, I think one of the um, something very like pertinent, poignant, kind of simple, but uh, a big like the big aha moment, the big like, OK, I can kind of start to get back to my life. You know, I can kind of start to uh, step out of this constant guilt and anxiety and, and feelings of like helplessness. And, and, um, because I think I said that my, my daughter says quite frequently that I love you, mom, you're the greatest mom. Blah, blah, blah. And, and I never could believe that. And then I, sorry if I'm repeating myself, but then I talked about how my relationship with my dad has healed and changed. And there came a point in therapy where I realized because I hadn't like articulated in my head yet is that, Hey, I love my dad. And, and if he it's was, possible for you to love your dad, yeah, it's I can, possible for them to love you. Yeah, I can believe my daughter, yeah. which is huge. I think at the end of the day, all things considered and all of the messiness of, of a life lived, that given this particular issue, 
um, that brought me into therapy this round. Um, that's huge. Sounds like it makes it therapy all worthwhile then, recognizing that you do love your dad first. And secondly, then my daughters do love me. Mm -hmm. And then nested within that was also my daughters weren't getting me, they were getting my illness. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a difference between the two. I am not my illness. Yeah. That's hard to, that was very difficult to get to. Yeah. I mean, like I said, that um, over the course, since my diagnosis, I've been okay with the, the, the diagnosis when it came to accepting it in my major screw up as a parent, that was where it was very, very difficult because I automatically went to, you're looking for an excuse. You know, there is no excuse. So I think that was when it was so overwhelming that I couldn't accept that. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately, given this context and that situation, that's where I really did really, really, really accept it. Wow. That feels like the perfect place for us to stop. Jane, thank you so much for sharing your story with both the listeners and myself. The amount of bravery and courage it took to share those intimate details of your life, particularly those parts that are filled with guilt and shame, is tremendous. And I think I speak for both the listeners and myself when I say that we're so very grateful. If you have a story like Jane's about parental guilt and healing and would like to share your story with other listeners, please email me at shannon at 90834podcast.com. Stay tuned for an unabashed plug of my own private practice. Wherever you go, there you are. That confused me when I was younger, but now I get it. You take your problems with you wherever you go. And as many of you might already know, a new location doesn't make things like depression and anxiety go away. If you're an expat that's ready to set down your emotional load and unpack what's going on, Apricity Expat Therapy is here for you. Our therapists offer a compassionate healing space for you to explore, grow to understand, and heal emotional wounds. Connect with us today to schedule your free initial consultation.